Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. I'm very excited to be able to read to you the scripture this morning. It's found in Psalm 139. I'll be reading the whole psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down, and you are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. How you doing, church? Um, this past uh, August, our um, elders boy and I had a chance to be on a, on a leadership retreat together, and we um, we were um, at, a, at a leadership conference, two-day conference, and one of the guys speaking was named uh, Dr. Travis Bradbury, and he's um, kind of expanded the work of, um, of Daniel Goleman. Um, years ago, you remember Daniel Goleman came up with this uh, concept of EQ, or emotional intelligence. And Goldman and then Bradbury after him sort of developed the idea that um, it's, we used to think that IQ, or intelligent quotient, how much you knew, was what determined how successful you'd be in life. And, and some of this really came out of just the, the whole Enlightenment movement, that knowledge is power, and the more we can study and the more we learn. And then so, so the value of education that we still place on education in many ways is shaped around the idea that we believe IQ, intelligence quotient, is what determines how successful you will be in life. But Daniel Goleman and then Bradbury after him said, actually, what's more important than IQ is EQ, emotional intelligence. And Bradbury said, actually, that EQ, your, your level of EQ, 
and, and I'll tell you in a second how he defines that, actually explains about 60% of your job performance, whereas IQ only explains about 20%. And for those of you mathematicians, the other 20% is a mixture of who knows what. Personality, environment, job, all that stuff. But basically what it's saying is like smarts, which we have said for years, well, that's what, and many of us are like, yeah, we, we kind of built our identity on that, went to the school, done, then this, or always lamenting that we weren't smart enough, we didn't get a chance to go here, actually don't account for much of your success, however you want to put that, in life, whether it's in work or uh, in relationships and family, etc. And that actually what's most important is EQ. And here's how Bradbury defines EQ. The ability to understand your own emotions and to work with them express them properly, and the ability to understand the emotions of other people and engage with them properly. It sounds pretty straightforward. He said, the good thing is, you can actually expand your EQ, and you don't need to go to get an MBA to do it. That you can actually learn how to become more aware of and expressively pro express properly your emotions and how to become more aware of the emotions of other people. He said, if you do that, you will increase your EQ and that actually determines more of your success in life than anything else. And it made me remember, I had a boss in one of my, um, early on in my career, and um, whenever I would, it, it was new to the job, and so whenever I would, you know, when you're new to the job, you have lots of questions about the work you're doing. So whenever I would go to knock on her door in her office, I, I began to notice that she would look up from her desk and go like this, yeah? It was like this pained expression on her face, right? So, um, so I, I would do this repeatedly, and I kept thinking, man, she's like, so finally I just thought, I, I just have to tell her that, that, you know, it's kind of making me feel like I shouldn't, I, I felt reluctant to approach her, whatever. So I went and sat down, and I said, you know, um, instead of a question, I said, when I knock on the door of your office to ask you something, you kind of have this look on your face that you're, it's kind of like I've just jabbed you in the side. Like it's sort of painful to talk to me, whatever it is. Is there something that I'm doing wrong or whatever? And she, she like kind of welled up and tears started crying. I was like, oh no. Um, but you know, what, I, what I began to learn about her was she was a very warm, caring, um, kind of gentle, relational person. But in the workplace, she thought that none of that should be in play. And so she was very hard and stoic and, and kind of would come across very strong. But if, if you just sort of poked past that initial layer, she was quite warm and emotional. And I think what she thought, and I don't know whether somebody taught her this or whatever, is essentially that to lead well, you kind of have to keep your emotions out of it. And you've heard people say that thing, oh, this is just business, or this is just whatever. But essentially what it meant in, in, in our workplace was she was going around, in a sense, trying to lead with one arm tied behind her back, or Goldman would say more than one arm, 60% of her capacity was not in play as she was leading. And it's interesting, right? Because I think many of us can attest to the fact that even if we, we're not, we haven't really thought about ourselves that way, Many times, in many ways, we've had conversations or we've done things where something just came out that we were surprised by. We were surprised by our level of emotion, our level of anger, our level of worry, our level of anxiety. Or maybe we were surprised by another person's sort of level of anxiety where we're like, whoa, where, where did that come from? It's this whole idea of what we're calling in this series that, um, the, as Mark said to you last week, Pastor Mark, that the iceberg effect, that um, essentially 90% of who we are is below the surface, and we tend to operate ourselves and respond to other people in the 10% that we can see. And <clears throat> what's interesting is that we live in a culture now with the pace of technology that we are pressed more and more to 
simply deal with the 10%, that I don't have much time to get to know people, or I got this one interview, I got to make an impression, um, or I got to make the impression, whatever thumbnail I'm going to put on my sort of, um, on my avatar, on whatever social media site I'm on, or whatever people, whatever I posted quickly, people are actually drawing impressions from me, and I'm giving impressions really all on that 10%. And yet, so much of really what matters and what influences our work and our relationships is actually what is below the surface, or our, our inner life and our emotional life. We've said, actually, that in many ways in the church, this is no different than, than in fact, one of the, it's, this is a conversation I have so often with people who don't come to church or people who are sort of new um, to the whole concept of church family, is they think that church is the place where you're supposed to have it all together. Like church people, whatever, religious people of any kind, they should be the ones who are good people and have it all together. And so, therefore, I'm not going to go into a community like that because I don't want to pretend because my life's kind of a mess. Instead of I saying, no, 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 church people, we're all the people who are just willing to admit that we're a mess, right? And that we need a savior. Like that's what makes us the church, just saying we know we can't save ourselves, <laughs> but God can and has and is right now. That, but this is a lie, right? We think, well, because in many ways, and maybe this is the religious tradition you grew up in or your home or whatever, what was concerned about was what you looked like and did on Sunday. You even had separate clothes for Sunday. So, and in a sense, like I've said to you before, it kind of became like an Ikea life, right? Like we got our spirituality bucket and we take the clothes out and the attitudes and whatever, we're going to go on Sunday and kind of look good, but on the inside, it's a mess. We kind of come back and, and then we can just sort of go on with our life. And that there's this, this that, that what, what it looks like and what we appear to be is really what's most important and, and ig ignoring actually in many ways and not just spiritually, but every part of our lives, what's below the surface. And the good news and the, the verse that is kind of like a prayer or an anthem in a sense for us in this whole series, Mark uh, read for you last week. It's in a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. First, First Thessalonians 5, he says this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you. It just means make you pure, make you holy, make you righteous, transform you through and through. Not on a surface level. Not just kind of a little bit of lipstick on you to make you look a little bit better and try to polish and so that people kind of think you're okay. No, that God would actually work in you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. This kind of busts up this myth that we have, the church is a place where we're just supposed to look good and have it all together, but saying, no, God actually wants to do a work in your life that is deep that is thorough, that is through and through. And then it says something that we kind of tend to think. We tend to think spirituality has something to do with our, just our inner person and our soul and nothing to do with life. And he says, no, be your whole spirit, soul, and body. In other words, everything about you, your whole life. And, and physicians know this now, that we can't actually separate, healthcare professionals know that you can't just separate what's going on in the body with what's going on in the mind from what's going on in the spirit of the heart, that they're all connected, thoughts, emotions, physicality. They're all interconnected. And the scriptures knew this hundreds and hundreds of years before, that God actually wants to do a work in your life that will affect every part of your life through and through, not just in a sort of a spiritual, ethereal, philosophical sense, but in a way that will actually affect your emotions, your thoughts, and the way you live your life in the body. This is amazing, right? And then at the very end of it, it says, he will do it. This is God's agenda in your life to actually work below the surface so that your whole body, mind, and spirit would be made pure, would be made beautiful. I think no matter what your faith background is or what you came in here feeling this morning, we all want that, right? We all want that, that from the top to the bottom, all the way through, what we think, what we feel, and what we do would be pure, 
and blameless and beautiful. And the scriptures say that's actually God's agenda in your life. It's why you feel it in the first place. It's why anyone even turns to God in the first place is saying, I believe there's something higher than me that can save me better than I can save myself. And so that's where we're going with this series. But where does this begin? Well, I wanted to, I, uh, wanted to quote, some of you are reading in that day-by-day journal, um, and one of the quotes in that, if, you, if you're not reading in it, you can grab one. It's just a, it's just a, a little, it's basically got two pages of a little a journal reading that you can do every day just to help you in this journey as we walk through it. But one of the quotes in there is from uh, a, a famous sort of pastor and theologian, John Calvin, uh, in the 16th century, and he says this, Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Uh, now, this sounds like very kind of very new age, right? But it's actually the 16th century. Uh, he says, if you want to, th- there's two pursuits in life to become truly wise. You have to know God. And you have to know yourself. That both of these things, and in a sense, it kind of busts apart this idea that spirituality has nothing to do with the inner person and what's really going on, who I really am. It's saying, no, if you really want to know God, and Calvin says, actually, if you want to know God, you got to know yourself. And if you want to know yourself, you got to know God because they're really connected. We as human beings, as followers of Jesus, believe that we were made in the image of God and that there's something of God, in a sense, in us, reflecting in us. And really to know ourselves, we need to know God. And to know God, we must know ourselves. And that these are the two great pursuits in life. It means that at the level of emotions, we need to begin to understand our emotional life. Now, I know as I say that, as we talk about emotions, people are like, oh, it's kind of touchy-feely. Why are we talking about that in church? And I'm just, I'm just not really an emotional person. For those who say I'm not really an emotional person, that just means you're immature, if I can be frank. Because you know I know that? Every child is born with emotions. And they just don't understand them. That's what makes them immature, right? Like, my, my youngest is six, but when he was two and, like, emoting on the floor in tears because of, I got to that moment going, um, so Gideon, tell me, like, what are you feeling right now? Like, where, and where do you think this crying and throw, why do you think you threw your bowl across the table? No, I think, he doesn't understand, it's just coming out of him. And I have a friend who works with teenagers, and she said, you know, one of the critical transitions that children and then teenagers need to make in order to become mature adults is children have a very simple emotional life, mad, sad, glad, right? And they have free to express them. They said, but as we grow older, we need to begin to understand in a more complex way our emotional life. That say, well, sometimes what looks like anger is actually embarrassment underneath the surface, or despair, or frustration. Sometimes what looks like, um, you know, sort of joy or whatever might actually be pride, or it might be just something that I'm kind of putting up to try to get myself through what seems like a difficult situation, that as we grow up, we actually need to understand to be able to name and articulate our emotions. And if we don't do that, it means that our emotional life is still fairly immature, even though we're walking around in adult bodies, which is why many times we get into the fights we get into, we get into the discussions we get into, disagreements, why we have, and they're saying our, our society, our culture, has uh, higher levels of depression, anxiety, and um, uh, depression and anxiety than, than ever before. 50% apparently of high school students struggling with anxiety. And I don't know all of the reasons for that, but one of the things I wonder is that as the pace of life has gotten faster, we have less and less time to actually reflect on what's going on under the surface. And in many ways, kind of just thinking, well, I'm just trying to deal with what's going on above the surface, what people see and what I can see, and that I'm not paying attention to what's going on in my inner life. 
So we actually have to begin to know ourselves. And that not knowing, understanding, or being able to express our emotions is actually a sign of immaturity. And so we want to actually be mature people. And if God is going to do the work that is through and through, touching the mind, the soul, and the body, we need to be people who, able, who are able to understand our emotions and say, this is a part of who I am, this is a part of who God made me, this is what is below the surface, and I don't want to be unaware of the things that are influencing me and everybody around me because I'm only really aware of the thin sort of sliver that sits above the surface of my life. The truth is, if we were to think about our emotions, they're inescapable. Like everything of substance in the world around us is actually filled with emotions. Patrick Lencioni, who's a business consultant, says the number one thing that determines whether teams will be successful, even if you want to measure it by a bottom line profit target, the thing that actually allows you to make money in business, he says, is trust. Any team that has trust is a high-performing team. Any team that doesn't have trust, doesn't matter what else they have, it won't work. Well, what is trust? Trust is the feeling and experience of feeling safe in an environment where I can be vulnerable, can I can be myself, and I can take risks, and I'm not afraid of failing because someone's not going to criticize me. Isn't, in, in part, trust is actually the feeling uh, of being safe and being able to be vulnerable with other people? He says that's what actually determines how much money you make in business. A every single song that is written, movies, they're, they're about emotions. Even advertisers who are trying to sell you insurance are trying to tap into your emotional life, right? They're trying to move you. That was so sweet. I should should get more car insurance, right? Like everything that uh, advertisers spend billions of dollars a year and the one thing they know is if we can move you, if we can make you laugh, if we can make you cry, if we can make you go, hmm, we will actually be able to move your behavior because emotions make the world go round. It's inescapable. But we also know this actually in our spiritual lives. Think about all of the things that were, meant to, were said we're meant to experience as Christians. Hope, peace, love, joy comfort. Some of those things are actually pure emotions. And some of them, if they're more than emotions, if you don't have the emotions, they mean nothing. Like, yes, I know love is a choice. But if I told you, I don't really, I don't feel really warm towards my wife or my kids. But I love them. You say, well, something's wrong with that, right? Like, if the heart as we, we, and we use the word heart, right, to describe sort of the center of our emotional life. If that's not engaged in us, what do we have? And so really, in, in every sphere of life, and including our spiritual life, our emotions are actually a big part of it. And many of us were raised in religious traditions that said, it's not about what you feel. It's about um, f facts. You know, these are the facts. And here's the, the faith. And then feelings are the caboose, right, that come at the end of the train. And can the train run with the, the caboose? Yes, it can. So you don't need really feelings to actually follow God. But it just doesn't seem to be actually what's true <laughs> about what the scripture says. And um, Dan Allender, who's a, a, a psychologist and Tremper Longman, a theologian, written a bunch of uh, biblical commentaries, said this in their book. Ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart, a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, or disengagement. We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. We are frightened and ashamed of what leaks into our consciousness, right? Things that we're afraid to say out loud. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. And listen to this. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability. 
before God. Change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. Nowhere do we learn this better than from the man the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. And I think this is very interesting for us to actually understand it as people. You know, previous generations, you know, Tom Brokaw, the, the famous U.S. journalist, called the generation that made it through the Depression and then went to war the greatest generation, right, because of what they were able to survive through. But we know, actually, when we study the children of those parents, we know emotionally, though, especially those men that came back from the war, did not have an ability to relate to their kids emotionally because of what they had seen was so traumatic, they just turned off the emotional taps. And so we grew up with a generation saying, oh, I know my parents love me. They just never said it. Well, how do you know they loved you? Well, they worked really hard. And yes, they did. But the emotional interaction between them was not there. And then the boomer generation or the grew up in Woodstock and saying, let's just always have fun. Sleep around, smoke as much drugs as you can, like the world might end anyways, so let's just have a good time. And that was sort of, again, a bit of a more shallow emotional life. And then Generation X, my generation, and then millennials that came after sniffed out the inauthenticity of that and said, yeah, yeah, it all looked good on the surface, but we knew your marriage was a chaos back home because we lived in it. And we are not interested now, the millennial generation, authenticity is the primary currency. It's the sniff test. If you don't smell authentic, I don't care what you have to say. If I don't sense my employer is authentic, I'm not going to work there. If I don't sense my parents are authentic, I'm not going to listen to them. If I don't sense my teacher is authentic, I'm not going to be in this class. And maybe we say we can swung to the other end of the spectrum, but the point is, is that authenticity, the sense of what's going under the surface really matters. We actually now have a generation that is so comfortable with their emotions, they just bleed all over everyone in social media, right? And that's the music that we make. It's like, this is who I am, take it or leave it, which is brutal honesty and vulnerability, but it's missing the aspect of being brutal and honest before God. And Longman and Allender said, change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability. Yes, we're not going to pretend, but it is in the presence of God. And so as the people of God, we say, well, how do we do that? Well, Psalm 139 gives us a perfect, in a sense, template. David begins this psalm, you know, he says something beautiful, right? Like, you've searched me and you know me, God. He says, like, you knew me since the day I was born, right? Like, when I, before I was even formed, you saw me. And there's something comforting about that, right? Saying, someone has been watching over me all the days of my life. You know everything about me. Um, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Um, you created me in my, in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. All the days were known. It's, it's very comforting, right? But he starts to have this experience where the more he is known by God, the more terrifying it is. And so he says, well, where can I flee from your presence? He's using the word flee, right? Like, it's actually terrifying to be known that well. This is why people leave marriages all the time. Because it's terrifying to be known by somebody who's that close to you. And David, in a sense, has that experience. He realizes God knows everything about me and from the top to the bottom. You know, my, you know my thoughts before I even think them. And then he says, and where can I flee from your presence? Like, I can't get away from you. You know, if I go up to the heights of the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths of the sea, you're there. Even, in, even if I say darkness, I'll just sort of hide in this dark corner. Your light blinds me. You ever been in the dark and someone flicks on the light and you're like, oh, turn that off. It's kind of an experience of the closeness, the terrifying closeness of God. And we know this. Some of you that have walked alongside people who are married or if you've been married, you know this experience that marriage in a sense is a little bit of a picture of this terrifying level of intimacy. Beautiful and yet sometimes way too close. Because we've learned as a culture that you can be physically naked with someone without being emotionally naked with them. 
And so then we get into actually a lifelong relationship. And now all of who we are, not just the 10% that everybody sees, but everything else is there. You know, it's not just how you look good with your hair product outside, but what you look like in the morning. And it's not just who you appear to be. You can hold it all together for everybody else in the 10% during the day. But when we come home, it all just comes out, right? Who we are. Just, and that person knows us and they sort of go, hey, that's not healthy. And we're like, hey, who, you know, don't look at me. You know, why are you pointing that out to me? There's a terrifying level of intimacy and closeness when we are known so well. Because so few people know us so well. And David has this experience of God, in a sense, coming close to him. And he's sort of, it's beautiful and it's terrifying at the same time. And he says, well, where, I, you know what, I can't. And then he says, you know what, I can't even get away from you. And that's when he begins to move on. He says, actually, God, how precious to me are your thoughts. Actually, actually, you're the one who knows me so well, but I actually want to know you too. If you know everything about me and you're still with me, if you know everything about me and you're the one pursuing me, then maybe this is a safe place. If you're the one person that actually knows the deepest things in my heart that I'm afraid to say out loud, that I'm afraid even to acknowledge to myself, or things that other people have rejected me for, and yet you love me still, you pursue me still, then maybe this is a safe place. Even when I wake up, you're there. So let me know your thoughts. So he begins to, in a sense, invite God in more. He says, I want to know more. And then, then he kind of goes into this bit of, the, of a rage of like verses that we kind of feel afraid to read at church. He starts going off, right? If only God, you would slay the wicked. You know, it sounds like a good old Game of Thrones episode. Like, away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. And then he, he starts getting mad. He's like, people who hate you, God, I, I hate them. Don't I hate them? You know, he's, he's sort of going off like all the raw emotions are coming out. He's not tempering them anymore. And then, and then at the end, and he says, Okay, search me and know me, God. He says at the beginning, you know me. You've always known me. But now this is not just you knowing everything. You're up there. You see everything. Now he, he's, he's close. He says, okay, search me and know me. I have anxious thoughts. There's a ball of turmoil of anxiety and fear. And, you know, I'm a psycho some days if people really knew. And then he says, see if there's any offensive way in me, like the fact that I want to kill everyone. You know, like, like see if there's, there's some offensive things underneath the surface to God, things that they're not good, but I have to say them out loud. And in fact, you know them anyways. So come, actually search me and know me. And then he says, lead me in the way everlasting. The term everlasting, this idea in the Old Testament when David would write about it and other people would sing, it was this idea of being led into life. He wasn't talking about sort of heaven. He was talking about a place of knowing, a place of safety, security, that place of like being made alive, of being known through and through. And so it's this pro process that David goes through. Because I think sometimes the, the scariest and loneliest times in life is when we're surrounded by people that should know us and we feel unknown. We're surrounded by a whole bunch of people that should make us feel safe and we feel lonely. Because in many ways we could say, and maybe you've said this to yourself, I don't they don't really know me. You know, some of us who maybe are more reflective than others would say, yeah, I don't feel like anyone really knows who I am. And David says, yeah, but you know me. 
You know my thoughts even before they come. And instead of just being afraid of that kind of intimacy, God, I actually want to invite you into the deepest parts of my life to say, you know what? There's stuff in me that's anxious. There's stuff in me that's angry. There's stuff in me that's fearful. There's stuff in me that's, you know, I'm afraid to be honest with myself and let alone other people. And yet it spills out. It comes out. So I want you to to search me and know me and see if there's anxiety and anger and even offensive things in, in me and begin to work in that part of my life to lead me in the way everlasting. And the verse of Thessalonians that we read at the beginning says, yeah, that's actually what God wants to do. A work through and through. Let me tell you what this has looked like in my own life. Um, this, this book, Day by Day, that we're reading is based on a book by a pastor named Peter Scassero called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And one of the things that Mark's going to be talking about next week is saying sometimes to understand who we are and where we are in our emotional life, we have to understand where we've come from and our family background and stuff. And one of the things I found as I got married and then had, had kids was I had a real hard time with what, what I had called sort of negative emotions. Okay, so anger, sadness, anything that would be perceived as sort of negativity, pessimism, whatever, I had like an intolerance for. And I married a woman who shoots straight. She does not spin anything. Um, which is a great thing. But she would always be like, she would say stuff, and I'm like, how can you just say that? You, can, you can't just say that out loud. And she's like, well, that's what I feel. Or do you not see what I see? That's just the truth. And I'd be like, yeah, but you can't say that out loud, right? And I, so I was sort of a positivity person, then I went to school to study marketing. So you spin everything. You don't shoot, any, shoot anything straight, right? Like whatever you're going to say, you kind of nuance it and try to spin it to make it seem positive or whatever. And I'm married to this person who would just regularly say, you know what, I don't think that's true. Or this is how I feel. And, and I was, and, and she would start to feel like I was just kind of clamping down on her emotions, say, you can't feel that way. And then I had children who, you know, regularly emote, right? And if they were ever sort of really angry or really sad, I would always just try to talk them out of it, or I would find, I would get angry with them for being angry. And I didn't know what was going on. And we're reading this book, and it was just talking about sort of understanding some of the things in your family background that kind of shape. And what I realized was, I remember, my dad is an amazing guy, and he's, He's a great parent, never raised his voice, ever. He's just so logical and calm. But I remember having arguments with him, and I'm not like that. I'm more of a passionate person. I'm more emotional. And I remember him saying to me, you know, he would say, hey, I'm not raising my voice. You don't need to. Oh, you know, like that would just make me crazier. Um, and I think what, what, I, what I sort of took from that, and I don't think they would have ever said that this is how you're supposed to be, is like strong emotions are bad emotions. Like, like if, if, you're, if, if you have an outburst of anger, okay, that has to stop right now. And so maybe an outburst of anger is not a, it's not a good thing. My, you know, as my kids, as they get older, I want to learn them to express that more. But instead of clamping down in that moment and say, hey, you shouldn't talk like that. What was, it was bringing up in me. And really, here's what it came to. Because you know, you know yourself and you know God. I began to sort of ask myself, why do I feel so stressed or upset with them when they're like that? It's because, like I was saying to Andrew and Tessa and Dave and Kate, I sort of started to think, no one had told me this, but I just thought this, I'm supposed to control my kids' behavior. And I began to, you know, as I read the psalm, I go, wait, wait, no, 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 actually, God is in control. I'm not in control of their behavior. It's not my job to make the 10% look good. Really, and that's what we think, right? Like, we can't do that, or, or if you don't, right? I need to teach them how to, how to helpfully kind of handle their emotions, but I'm not supposed to control them. I don't make choices for them. They make choices. And how much more do I need to know this as they get older and older? And maybe they're not living in my house, or maybe they are, but they're not home very often or whatever, that it's not my job to make decisions for them. It actually began to make me worship God more and pray more, say, God, you are the one who's in control. 
you know, made me breathe more deeply. It made me really rest in the things that I always said I believed, which was God is the king of the universe. I said it. I just didn't believe it. And it was coming out of this. And so I began to understand my own emotional life more and to actually realize that my wife in many ways has taught me to be far more honest and straightforward. That's why she's actually way better in, in relating to other people's emotions. She's far more in touch with how other people are feeling emotionally than I was because I was sort of had this fear, this irrational fear of anything that was a strong emotion, any kind of despair, or any kind of anxiety, or any kind of negativity, or any kind of anger, and I'd be like, got to stop that, or got to talk them out of it, or whatever, instead of just learning to say, hey, I just need to be with somebody in that. And so that actually changed me as I began to appreciate my wife in a whole different way, changed our relationship, changed how we relate together. And sometimes she'd say, look, I want you to talk me out of it, but just not yet. <laughs> you know, just be with me. And then I'm like, yes, like this is what I'm here for, to walk alongside her, not to get her to feel something. I'm not in control of her. And this isn't going to destroy our marriage if someone's kind of really strong and saying something. And in fact, it's probably better to be more honest about the way things really are than to pretend they're not the way they are and just hope they'll get better. It's kind of how I would be sometimes. And so this has brought a whole level of healing in my relationship, my relationship with my kids, but ultimately me knowing God more and worshiping him more and praying more and just thanking him more for the way that he works in that. And I think that's, um, that's just a bit of a taste of how I think is meant to be as we begin to know God, as Calvin says, and we know ourselves and vice versa and how it begins to change. And so here's what I want to do with you and just ask you to reflect on this. The worship team is going to come up. <clears throat> Well, I want you to just take two minutes. You're going to have time in your home groups actually later this week. But here's the question I believe that we need to ask, that David asked about himself and about God. What are you feeling right now? <clears throat> what are you feeling right now? Um, even as you have come into this place, is there something you're anxious about, angry about, sad about? What's going on right now? Because let's be honest, we just rarely ask ourselves that question. We mostly just react. We just respond. We just do I want you to take a moment and ask yourself that question and then say, okay, what would it mean to invite God into this? Like for me, right, if I'm feeling anxious because things are, you know, I, I don't know how to control my children. Okay, what does it mean to invite God to say, God's saying, actually, I, I've got this. You don't need to. You can trust me. You cast your cares upon me. So just take a moment. And maybe you're saying, I don't know how to invite God. Maybe that's the thing you're asking for. So just take a moment. What am I anxious, angry, sad about? And how can I invite God into this? Just take a couple minutes and do that now. You can... You can Actually, do that right now. And the other question I want you to ask, and maybe this is, maybe for some of you, this lands more than the other one. Just think about someone with whom you're having conflict right now. One of the things we almost never ask ourselves in the middle of a conflict is, what are they feeling 
right now. We know what they're doing. We think about what they said. We think about what they've done or what they're not doing. But what are they feeling right now? Because they also have stuff going on under the surface that maybe they haven't articulated. Maybe I need to say to myself, what might they be feeling right now? And do I need to actually ask them? That could be with a child, with a parent, with a spouse, with a coworker. How, how would this change your work environment if you went to, to work on Monday and said, hey, I was just thinking, um, you know, you've seemed a little bit um, like something's troubling you lately, or I know we've had a bit of conflict. How are you, how are you feeling these days? Be like, what do you mean? This come from? Oh, you're just talking about a church. Like, how would that actually change the, the, oh, the whole conversation? How would that question, more than any other question of why did you do that or why aren't you doing this or what's going on with it, what's the matter with you? Say, hey, what are you feeling right now? That that might actually change the trajectory of those conversations. I don't know about you, but I have times and places and conversations, situations and relationships that I wish I could get a do-over on. I think I wish I could get that back whether it was that one conversation or that one thing I said or that email I wrote, I wish I could get that back. Friends, we begin to learn to do this and invite God into this. I believe that we can actually be people who begin to live with less regrets of what spilled out <laughs> instead of actually what, what came out because we have invited God to say, search me, know me, lead me in the way everlasting. Nancy and the team are going to lead us in two songs that I believe are the ways that we invite God and remember who he is, remember what he's done into our hearts. You know, the one line in this song, it says, you've, you've, you've op opened my heart and set me apart. Is that what it says? You've entered my heart. You've entered my heart and set me apart. This is why Christians talk about Christ coming into us. The Holy Spirit comes and begins to change me from the inside out. In light of that, that there is no fear. We're children of God with a new conversation. I want to bless you with a new conversation, one with you and God that your prayer life with him would be set on fire as you begin to invite him into those deepest parts of your life, the things that are really going on, that it would change a new, a new conversation between you and the one who has formed you from the beginning and, and has bore, uh, birthed you again anew into his family, but that you would also have the courage to have a new conversation maybe with someone that you have been having conflict, to say, hey, what's really going on with you, with us? How do we begin to get below the surface? That the courage of those of us who are children of God saying, I have no fear, would lead you into a new conversation. Would you receive that blessing? Amen.